Well, that's good. I got a notification that our show's live, at least. Things are seem to be working better. Uh, welcome to American Party Podcast today. Uh, alongside me, Dan Holloway, your host. We have Nick Gillespie, who is the uh, host of Reason uh, Podcast. You, and you are the editor. The Reason interview. interview. Excuse me. Yeah, Reason Podcast. Interview Podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you are the uh, editor-in-chief of Reason mm-hmm. Magazine for quite a while as well. I was uh, the editor-in-chief of Reason, the print magazine mm-hmm. from 2000 to 2008, the website and the video platform from 2008 to 2018, and now I'm an editor-at-large, so I make content rather than curate it. Okay. Uh, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into all this? Uh, what, what's your education? Where, where'd, you, where'd you come from? Okay, so uh, I'm speaking to you from uh, Manhattan. I was born in Brooklyn, a very small child. I uh, grew up mostly in New Jersey. Uh, and um, I, you know, uh, God, I don't, you know, when you say, where did I come from? Fuck. Um, it's, yeah, like, I, you know, I, I, wor- I wonder about that every day. But um, I, uh, I went to Rutgers uh, College. I was an English and psychology uh, major. I worked for a bunch of newspapers and teen magazines and music magazines and movie magazines in New York. Before going back to grad school, I've got a master's in English and creative writing from Temple University in Philly and a PhD in American literature from uh, SUNY Buffalo. And I started at Reason in 1993. I became a libertarian partly by hanging around with a lot of teen stars and a lot of rock stars. Like you realize you, you want these people to have as much freedom as possible, but you don't want them to have any control over your life. Just like politicians. <laughs> I, as a cub reporter for a bunch of newspapers in New Jersey, uh, I, you know, went to planning board meetings and zoning board meetings and really, you know, learned that, you know, uh, the tyranny, the local tyranny that is local government for the most part. Uh, and that definitely helped me become a libertarian, as well as reading Reason Magazine, which I've been doing since high school. My brother discovered it at college and sent it home to me. Uh, and then I joined Reason in 1993 um, and was happy to escape uh, Buffalo's weather. Uh, it's based in L.A., although most of our people now are in D.C. and I live in New York. So I don't know if that brings us up to date. But, um, you know, that's kind of who I am. Well, yeah, I want to talk uh, more about the libertarian thing, because I think um, libertarian is it seems to be something of a catch all these days for people who are just disenfranchised from two party uh, politics. Um, And I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I I have conversations with a lot of people about this, and um, I feel like a lot of them don't really understand the ethos of libertarianism very well. I have come over the years to define it increasingly not as a kind of set of, you know, fixed principles even or policy prescriptions like here are 10 libertarian takes. And if you don't agree with, you know, 10 out of 10 or you only agree Mm -hmm. with eight out of 10, get the fuck out. You're not libertarian. Um, Although I would, you know, there are definite libertarian policy positions, but I've been defining more and more as an adjective or as a direction, as a temperament. And basically the way I see it is libertarianism or or being libertarian is about wanting a smaller government, um, not simply to have a smaller government, but to give more people more control over the choices in their lives. Um, And, you know, I'm not an anarchist. I believe in a limited government. It should be much more limited than it is today, and it should be much smaller at every level. 
and just geared towards helping people uh, that can't help themselves and protecting people, uh, you know, protecting their rights and their, you know, their bodily integrity. Um, so I see it as a as a direction. Are we going more to a, a space where people have more meaningful choices uh, and ability to act on those in their life or less? <clears throat> um, you know, other other people will define it elsewise. But, you know, what that comes down to practically is I'm pro, uh, you know, I want more immigration rather than less immigration. I think more people should be allowed to come here and live legally mm. and work legally. I think uh, drugs should be legalized because the harms of the black market are so intense uh, that they totally overwhelm any possible uh, possible benefits from prohibition, including, you know, things like, uh, you know, we need criminal justice reform. I believe I'm a free speech maximalist. Uh, I believe in school choice, uh, things like this. I, you know, I want to live in a world where the economy and the cultural sphere are as deregulated as possible, mm. not so that people don't, you know, uh, you know, don't have, uh, don't belong to communities or something, but that they get to pick where they go. For me, the model in a lot of things is kind of the way we deal with religion, where it's not mandatory and you can affiliate with whatever church you want. And that means we have a lot of different churches uh, people are coming and going, they're creating new ones, old ones are dying out. Like that's basically every part of life should be like that. Mm. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, I, if you, if you say things uh, like that without attaching any kind of label to it, you'll see a lot of people nodding their heads. And then you say, I'm a libertarian. You're like, Oh, what's that mean? Oh, yeah. Well, I just fucking told you what it means. You know what I mean? But it's also, you know, there's like weird, uh, you know, attachments that that or sure. that, you know, kind of get stuck on the libertarian line, uh, you know, label and things yeah. like that. So, I mean, it's like a, uh, a, an a, anarcho-capitalist get lumped <laughs> in with libertarians yeah. a lot. And that's it's just not a very I mean, I guess uh, uh, to some degree, they're they're clo- more closely related than uh, than neocons and neoliberals. Yeah, uh, I think so. But you know, I'm not I'm not an anarcho care and ANCAP, uh, mm. but uh, a lot of my friends are, and I think there's a lot of really good ideas there and things mm. like that. I'm just, I don't, you know, I fully believe because I believe in technological innovation and improvement. Uh, you know, I I think I'm going to live to be a hundred, maybe two hundred, but no matter how long I live, I don't have enough time to kind of keep reiterating the foundations of everything which anarcho capitalists are constantly doing like i right. you know we we are thrown into the world uh you know we have a certain amount of time here and it's like i just want to make sure we're going in the right direction yeah i mean that's uh it, it's the the uh, i think the most I, I tweeted this the other day i think the most honorable thing that any patriot can do is leave america better than they found it and it's hard to do that without some kind of organized effort. I wonder, from your perspective, as somebody that's been a libertarian for decades now, uh, do you is one of the. It seems to me one of the biggest challenges is to uh, wrangle people to organize a bunch of people who mostly just want to be left alone. You know what I mean? It, mm. It's like that. That that's got to be a challenge in some way. Yeah, you know, uh, but it's also true that uh, you know one of I you know one of the slams on libertarians is that they're you know selfish, egotistical, self-centered, you know, in a, in a profound way. And I actually have found that like libertarians, maybe even more than most people, it's like they want to be free from coercive, you know, power, not so that they never have to deal with other people, but so that they can create the communities and the, the companies 
the families, you know, the, the societies that they want to belong in that are kind of opt in rather than, you know, mandated. Um, so there have been like, you know, over the 30, almost 30 years, I've been a reason there have been a ton of libertarian shifts, broadly speaking, in American culture that generally don't get identified as libertarian or acknowledged as such. But I would, you know, when you look at free speech, we're in the middle of an interesting period where, you know, there is wokeism in the private sector and in the public sector that is, you know, dangerous and growing. But it's, I think it's overwhelmingly dwarfed by the rise in all forms of new technology, including, you know, the stuff we're talking through mm. where you can say and publish and produce whatever you want and you can find an audience for it in a way that 50 years ago was virtually impossible. Um, you know, that's great. I think, you know, individualism go, comes and goes, but, you know, the state now, I think, has to deal with people more as individuals than it did 50 years ago. Um, I think that's good. Uh, you know, when I see, um, you know, free trade um, has taken a beating over the past couple of years. But, you know, in 1970 or whatever, 72, you know, let's say 40 years ago or 50 years ago, I don't, you know, whatever. Yeah, I guess it's 50 years ago. Um, you know, free trade was not taken that seriously by the most powerful people on the planet. It's much more taken for granted. It's under attack. I think, you know, immigration is generally seen as a good thing. Again, you know, these things are all, you know, being battled at any given moment. But like, in many, many profound ways, the, um, you know, the world is more libertarian. People have more options to live however they mm. want, and people generally are more comfortable with that. Um, I do think you know, the current moment we're going through a phase where this stuff is getting under, coming under attack from both the traditional right and the left. So this is a particular moment where libertarians need to be front and center. And we'll see if we rise to the uh, challenge. Yeah, it's, uh, that's certainly true. I mean, it seems to me like let's let's talk about the immigration thing. This is something mm -hmm. that I deal with on a regular basis. Um, having conversations that um, tiptoe outside of party line talking points uh, with some people seems to be increasingly more difficult. I think it's just uh, intellectual laziness. Really, it's so it's so much easier to monolith everything. Like all immigration's bad. Like well. Not really. I mean, it, cyclical migrant labor is a massive boon for the American economy. We get labor yeah. that is extremely cheap, keeping products cheap, and those folks make that money and then go back to their communities and other countries where that dollar goes a lot farther than it would here. So we're not taking, taking advantage of them. Right. You know what I mean? They're making a lot of money for, for their location, and we're getting cheap products for our location. That seems like a good deal for us. Um, but you see less and less of that point being made from the left, right. uh, from, from the pro-immigration side, if you want to call them yeah, that. Because, because that's, say, not, that's uh, not their people intent. Are yeah, people are being exploited. And right. so, you know, we want more people to be coming here, but under certain circumstances that we kind of control and direct. Mm. And yeah, that's problematic. I mean, immigration for me, is, you know, probably like one of the, I write about a lot of stuff or, you know, bloviate about a lot of stuff. Immigration is extremely, uh, you know, near the very top of the list. All of my grandparents were uneducated, unskilled, you know, trash from Europe. Uh, my grandparents came from Ireland on my father's side and Italy on my mother's side. And they were exactly the type of people they came in the 19 teens. If they had come, tried to come 10 years later, 
they wouldn't have been able to get into the country because of uh, restrictions placed on immigration in the early 1920s. And, you know, they are archetypal, you know, people from shithole, like, you know, people from shithole countries, Ireland and Italy were like third world countries when they came over and they had no real skills and they showed up here and they did pretty well. You know, they produced a generation of kids, you know, which is not a good thing, but who fought in World War II and then, you know, became middle class after World War II. Um, and we need more people like that, not fewer. Um, I, you know, I find on the left, as you were saying, there's this weird kind of embrace of immigrants as long as we get to kind of control their their comings and goings um, and their labor patterns. And then, you know, on the right, there has been this rise of, you know, the conservatives and Republicans for most of the post-war era. And certainly like Ronald Reagan was, you know, objectively pro-immigrant mm. um, in the past 20 or 30 years, the right has become so hostile to immigrants from places like Mexico and China. Um, it's it's deeply disturbing because a lot of these people, like I know a lot of people at National Review and at other Repub you know, conservative publications, many of whom have names, you know, last names that end in vowels or mm. are suspiciously Irish sounding. <laughs> And they're anti-immigrant. And it's like, come on, you know, like if it was good for your grandparents or your great grandparents or your parents, it's probably good for now, too. You know, people will say and, and increasingly a number of libertarians are like this. They, they feel, you know, the existence of a welfare state means you can't have immigration uh, or, you know, pretty loose immigration. And, you know, that's wrong. Like, you know, build a wall around the, the welfare state, not around immigrate immigrants most of whom can't access welfare anyway. And to the extent that they do, they uh, they take advantage of it much less than native born people. Sure. Uh, you know, you're you're in Texas, right? You're in Austin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, that's right. Think about it. Th you know, like Texas, uh, you know, where I've lived, I, I did a two year hitch in uh, Huntsville, Texas, not in the prison, but uh, in the town, <laughs> which, you know, to be quite honest, it's kind of a blurry line between mm -hmm. you know, being in the walls unit and just walking around downtown Huntsville. Um, but, um, you know, Texas is benefiting from massive migration from places like New York and California and, uh, you know, Illinois. And, you know, that works on the national level, too. You know, it, it, it creates some difficulties and adjustments and things like that. But like, you know, the free movement of people is kind of a great thing. And people go to places where life is better and has more options. Uh, you know, I lived for a long time, I lived in a small town in southwestern Ohio, which had no immigration. And Ohio actually has like, you know, out migration. And it's like there I realized, you know, after living in various types of, you know, various different places in the country, the places that have a lot of immigration are always doing pretty well. And it's the places that don't have a lot of immigration. You know, I said I went to grad school in Buffalo. Buffalo needs migrants, mm -hmm. uh, whether they're from the U.S. or Canada or from, you know, Antarctica. Um, and it's uh, inevitably it's the places with low immigration that are doing the worst. Um, so, but there has to be, I mean, even, even, uh, someone that, that recognizes the benefits of migratory labor or migration in general, uh, there has to be some kind of security in today's age, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, one of the, uh, you know, and, and I get accused of this a lot of, you know, just being an open borders person. And that conjures up the idea that we would just have nothing anywhere, no checkpoints anywhere around the perimeter of the country or, you know, more realistically, most illegal immigrants mm -hmm. enter the country legally. Uh, you know, I think it's a majority of them come in through uh, certainly legally, but oftentimes through airports and things like mm -hmm. that. 
where you're not thinking about it. But it's not. No, the whole point is that what you do is you check people as they're coming across the border. And as long as they don't have, you know, say a violent, uh, you know, criminal past, uh, you know, you vet them for that and whether or not they have like communicable diseases that are, you know, a threat, let them in let them live openly. That means that, you know, they, they can't get welfare for, you know, the first several years. Um, they, uh, and they, um, you know, they, they can work, but then they pay taxes. You know, I mean, it's like the whole idea of illegal immigration, like illegal immigration, creating a black market in immigration brings about the same black market problems you see when you're talking about drugs. Um, it doesn't get rid of the supply, but it just makes it more dangerous for everybody, yep. including bystanders. Like the best thing we could do, you know, there's if there's like a million people who want to come here but aren't allowed because we have insane uh, bureaucratic uh, restrictive immigration laws, let them come across the border. We know who they are. We're, you know, they're paying taxes. They're not getting anything out of us. Man, that's like a win. And, and as you were saying, Part of it, uh, you know, some of these people, if they're here for, you know, for particular seasons, like if they're migrant, you know, farm workers or something like that, they come here for a while and then they go back mm. and they actually create more stability in their home countries. Yep. My Italian grandfather used to go uh, between uh, from Italy uh, in the early 1900s. He would go to Argentina for a while and work there and come back. He would go to the U.S. and work and then. World War One came and his father said to him and his brothers, like, you've got to you got to pick a country, either Argentina or the U.S. and go there for good, because otherwise you're just going to be you know, wiped out as, mm. as a, a draftee of World War One. And my grandfather was the stupid one. He came to the U.S. at the time. Argentina was a wealthy country and was more welcoming to Italians. But it's like, you know, we win. We win. If people who want to come here to work and live and you know, start something, we win if they're, they're here. You know, and all we have to do is make it easier for them to be visible. Um, yeah. Everybody wins. Well, I mean, we're the first country in history to organize ourselves around ideas instead of the way people look. Um, yeah. I mean, and we did kind of a shitty job of that. We did a horrible a job. Yeah. And to, <laughs> but having said that, uh, yeah, like exactly. And, you know, this is one of the things I think we're, you know, more broadly, we're in a moment and have been for a good chunk of the 20th century. But, you know, after 9-11, after the financial crisis, after Trump, to some degree, certainly after COVID, the rise of China, you know, we're not we don't feel very confident or secure in ourselves. And as a result, we get, you know, when, when you're a little bit nervous, you're like, I don't know, we we don't want change. Um, and so people say, well, immigrants, particularly now, you know, the, the two biggest sender countries are China and India. Uh, Mexico is the third, but yeah. like these are these are different types of people than we normally get on mass. And you know we we can't we can't withstand that. Like we're losing our culture. But the genius of America is that its culture is constantly changing. And I you know I, I gotta say my Italian grandparents who never spoke English, who lived in an Italian ghetto in Waterbury, Connecticut, their entire lives, were pretty good Americans. You know, they raise, they worked hard. They raised kids who worked hard. And, you know, when you think of the way that a bunch of Italian culture filtered into America and made it more interesting, certainly very different, yeah. um, you know, but it's like, hey, you know what? That's pretty good. And like when you look at these monolithic cultures, including a place like Japan, which has fewer people now than it had in 2000, it's getting old. They, they don't want to admit immigrants because they want to keep things the way they are. Japan is like a dying culture. Uh, I don't want America to look like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, 
and we have this way. It, it seems like I, there's some agency uh, involved each one of these times, whether it's an organization or some kind of movement or one of the political parties that tries to attack uh, pretty much anything like that that happens, regardless of if the mm-hmm. attack is actually salient to the point. Like there were two and a half almost 3 million Italians from the late 19th century until the 1920s that came from Italy to the United States. At its height, the mob had about 6,000 made guys, right? right? And that's all people, like a, a, a quite a bit of people. We still have not had, to my knowledge, an Italian president and probably won't for some time, for some yeah. odd reason. It's, mm-hmm. It makes no sense <laughs> at all. Um, <clears throat> but... That's been the case for a lot. There's like this, uh, this, these weird prejudices that we talk about, and it's uh, there's actually a good book from the 1950s about this, about how uh, the the language that was used during the uh, the sugar trade in the early Americas, uh, where it was like, uh, oh, these these black people are are good workers and all, but be careful because when they come here, they're going to come after your women. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, there's always some weird yeah. narrative drawn by nefarious forces that want to corrupt all of this, or maybe they just want to yeah. hold on to power for themselves. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah. Um, and um, it's, yeah, it's, it's creepy and it's recurrent. Mm. Yeah. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me how easily people fall for that shit. I mean, I guess we are tribalistic at our core, but yeah. And, and again, I think a lot of it is, you know, a lot of people are scared when, you know, when the global economy changes, uh, you know, and, the, and which means the local economy changes and mm-hmm. things like that. And I wrote uh, in my uh, doctoral dissertation, I wrote a lot about The Great Gatsby, which I read as a novel about um, about the shift in America from the countryside to the city. It was real in 1920 was the first census where more people lived in cities than in kind of small towns and around the countryside. And it's a novel where there, you know, people don't read it this way usually, but there's a ton of immigrants all kind of filtered around the action. And both, uh, you know, Nick Carraway and the people he hangs out with are kind of freaked out by it, mm. um, you know, because there's Jews and Italians and blacks who have migrated from the South to New York. And it's kind of like, hey, you know, we're wasps. And what the fuck is going on here? Against that same backdrop is, you know, a change in the economy towards industrialization, et cetera you know, people freak out. And when you read things from the 20s, which, you know, after 40 years of sustained mass immigration from Europe Mm -hmm. and not from like the good parts of Europe, you know, Swedes weren't coming in the same numbers they used to. And Mm -hmm. British people, it was all like Italians and Greeks and Jews and, you know, some Irish left over, things of Poles, you know, Uh, people freaked out. And, um, you know, we need to have the cultural confidence that what America does uh, and I think this is brilliant. I think it's the genius of the country is that it comes, you know, it, it lets people come here and America changes a little bit. And the, those people change, too, because like you were saying earlier, you know, America is about ideas and it's it's really about kind of self-determination. It's about individualism, not so that you can live alone in your castle somewhere, but so that you can create the towns and the businesses and the families, you know, that you want and you know, like we we need to really, you know, be confident in that, that we can withstand, we take the wretched of the world, you know, the wretched refuse of the world mm. and we turn them into 
a fantastic country where people have more options to live however they want. Right. I think that's great. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it, it's uh, how, let me ask you this. Uh, I, it's very clear what the libertarian position on socialism is, uh, mm-hmm. but corporatism is something that's becoming uh, a, a much bigger problem these days. No. I think socialism is kind of a fucking joke to right. me. I uh, agree. Corporatism, though, is something that's that's becoming. It's quickly becoming uh, uh, more rampant. I guess it's been uh, since the industrial revolution. It's part of it, right? Because yeah. uh, the barrier to entry for large expensive equipment is right. always going to be there. So you have to be rich to get started in the first place or lucky. Yeah. Um, how do you balance as a libertarian, how you balance uh, like what uh, uh, Mitt Romney said, corporations are people. I mean, right. I, that, that can't be where the operating premise here. Well, so. I, I, yeah, I, I, you know, and like, you know, I think people struggle for the word that captures, uh, you know, the, the fears and, and the anxieties, um, you know, crony capitalism mm. gets used a lot. And I think that gets to a big part of it. You know, there's this idea that big business and big government are kind of like natural enemies, but they're actually natural allies. Mm. And, you know, we see this again and again um, in the at the turn of the century uh, into the 20th century. Uh, the railroads we were giant businesses. You know, there were these incredible trusts. And there was this story that progressive historians told and a lot of people tell because it's kind of a happy story. And politicians did that, you know, uh, strong, you know, forward looking progressive politicians reined in the railroads, uh, you know, to benefit the little guy. And so Mm -hmm. that's why you need a strong government to protect you against the depredations of big business. And a bunch of historians, including a guy named Gabriel Kolko, who was a socialist historian, went back and looked at that era. This was in the late 60s and 70s. And it was like, you know, that's completely wrong. It was the railroads that were calling for regulation because they had reached a point where their profits were starting to decline. So they wanted to lock in the market with them in the positions they were in. And that happens again and again. And this is an actual problem with capitalism, uh, particularly in the context of the way we do government. Big businesses get big and then they almost immediately sue the government for peace. And they say, hey, you know what, like competition is messy and, you know, things are going good now. So let's regulate this market. So, you know, we'll help you write those regulations and we're going to lock in things because everything is good now. Yeah. You know, examples of that in the current day include uh, companies like Facebook, which a couple of years ago, you know, and, and the, you know, the government was starting to say, hey, we got to regulate these guys. And Mark Zuckerberg, you know, went to in front of Congress. He said, you know, we need to be regulated. You're right. We're going to have to help you write those regulations because we know our business better than you. And after the regulations, you know, there won't be another Facebook, but we'll we'll feel good like all of the people in this room. And, you know, that's happening. Lyft Lyft and Uber are Mm -hmm. examples of that. Uber, you know, was a uh, kind of quintessential disruptive uh, technology and company, which has brought great things to the world, especially if you lived in a city that didn't have a lot of cabs, which is most cities outside of New York and a couple of other places. I mean, even with the cabs, because that was a, that was a a horrible industry, I guess, to be in. Uh, Yeah. Well, I, and, but what they would do is, you know, they would come into cities or, or areas and markets, and then they would build up a base. And then they went, they did this in DC and in Northern Virginia, where, they came in, you know, without permission, which is kind of great. And I mm-hmm. like that they built up a market 
And then they went to the cat, you know, they went to DC's city government and Northern Virginia. And they said like, Hey, you know what? We agree with you. It's, you know, it would be very disruptive if there were constant new entries into ride sharing. Why don't we come to an agreement where, you know, you cars have to be of a certain type and you have to pass certain safety things, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, you know, a, a business gets big and then it, it, it petitions the government to lock in its markets. I think that's a lot of what's going on today especially because, you know, one of the hallmarks of capitalism, Joseph Schumpeter, the economist, talked about creative destruction, Mm -hmm. businesses and kind of, you know, the economy and even, you know, social and cultural institutions are constantly changing. And, you know, if you if you are at the top of the pyramid, you want to preserve the pyramid. Um, So we're getting more and more of that. And what disturbs me really over the past, you know, I'd say, maybe 20 years, certainly over the past five years, is at least rhetorically, Republicans would say, you know, we're for free markets. We don't want the government picking winners and losers. They don't, that's gone out the window now. And, you you know, they, they're like, yes, the government should pick winners and losers, and we'll pick them because yeah. we want to be the government. Right. Yeah. And so you don't, you know, the only libertarians and, and weirdly some progressives push back on the idea that crony capitalism is, is a good thing. Mm. Yeah, but I, mean, I think it, people are pissed at it. It depends on the uh, it depends on the issue. Libertarians pretty much always progressives when, when unless it's something yeah. that's forcing somebody else to do something that they want them to do, then it's yeah. fine. I yeah, it's, it's same thing with speech. You know, like yeah, I, I, I mean, and you know, I'm proud to call myself libertarian, and um, you know, it's like libertarians are you know in, at their best. I mean, we might be uh, kind of hard headed, but we're very consistent, and mm. so you know, free speech isn't just something that's good when I need it. It's good for everybody, even if I hate what they're fucking saying. Right. And it's the same thing with like markets. You know, markets are good even when your market share is going to zero. Sure. Yeah. I mean, a right it only exists if it exists for everybody. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a privilege given to a chosen few. Right. Uh, right. And locking out new competition. It's, it's like the person who climbs the ladder and then pulls the ladder up with them. Yep. You know, we have no, which, we should which happens with immigration. Yeah. Right? A lot, like, quite yeah. a bit. First generation Americans are some of the most anti-immigration people I've ever Absolutely. met. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, you know, anytime you unnaturally rise barriers to entry or create uh, uh, competition vacuums, it freezes us in time and it mm-hmm. like, it, it disallows us from, the flexibility and ingenuity that made this country great. Yeah. And, and that's cancer. I mean, it's good that it, what happens when we need to do something, uh, innovation is the only solution. And, and, and our only option left at this point is, uh, the defense production act, I guess. I mean, that, right. that seems like a big fucking problem because we all, nobody that can hear the sound of my voice, trust government. I, I can't imagine yeah. that they do. It just, it's, it depends they they routinely will delude themselves if somebody they like is saying something they like, but mm-hmm. otherwise they don't like the government. Most people right. don't. Uh, and leaving the running of your country uh, or community to politicians and corporations is the equivalent of invoking a self-imposed caste system. Like you've yep. given them control over you. And it, the, the founders, as, as flawed as they were, uh, particularly on race and shit like that, but as flawed as they were on some of this stuff, they were pretty clear about of, for, and by the people, right? Mm-hmm. If you want a government that's of, for, and by the people, you have to take charge of your government. You know what I mean? You have to be an active yep. participant in it from the lowest possible level, all, yep. all the way up to the federal level. 
And that leads me to my next question. How does, sure. how does libertarianism work at the federal level? Like, how do you compete against uh, uh, neoliberals who have been, I mean, look, the liberals in general have been expanding government forever, but mm-hmm. now their counterpart, neocons, have presided over the largest expansion of the federal government history. They've broadened the surveillance state, all this stuff. And that's, I I don't know what libertarians did in the last federal election, but I'm guessing like maybe 11%, something like that. You're now, now it was closer to 1%. It's a little bit over like 1.4%. I think the LP, you know, the libertarian party is part of the libertarian movement, but it's, you know, not, it doesn't have a lot of success in terms of electoral things. And I, I, you know, I think, you know, the way that libertarians can affect either politics or policy um, is at a broader kind of cultural or almost pre-political level. Um, We definitely, you you know, when you talk about the expansion of the federal government, it is unbelievable, uh, you know, not adjusting for inflation, but the last, uh, the last budget that Bill Clinton signed in 2000, you know, for the fiscal year 2000 was slightly under $2 trillion. Uh, we, uh, you know, in 2021, we spent $6.8 trillion. And between t- 2019, you know, the federal budget was $4.4 trillion. So there was a 50% increase between 2019 and 2021. This is partly Trump, partly Biden. I mean, this, you know, we, we are not just expanding the government. It's like almost kind of geometrically, mm. you know, it's, it's like a doubling or tripling cube uh, thing going on. And, you know, I think you're right also, and I, I see this as a as a big win for libertarian thinking, uh, but it's, you know, it's kind of a Pyrrhic victory. But one of the things that libertarians have convinced most people of is that the government is not particularly good at what it does. People mm. don't have, compared to 50 years ago, uh, people have much lower levels of trust and confidence in the government at any level to either be competent or efficacious or honest. I, you know, and I know I, for a long time, I thought that was a precondition for people saying, okay, so I want less government. Um, as it turns out, and this makes things really complicated, um, across the globe, um, when political scientists, anthropologists, sociologists look at high trust societies that move into low trust societies, mm. um, you know, which is what's happening in the United States. Um, people don't say, okay, get the government out of my life. They are in a state of panic and they vote for more and more government, even knowing the government is, you know, incompetent or, you know, kind of criminal or something because they want some semblance of order. And I think that explains what's been going on. So I've been saying to libertarians for a while at reason a couple of years ago, I wrote a story about this. Our, our message might have to change from saying the government is always bad. You know, Ronald Reagan said, you know, the, the government isn't the solution to your problems. Mm. It is your problem um, or it is the problem. A very libertarian message, which has effectively won. But that's a recipe for growing government. I think what we need to be doing is kind of re, you know, reframing what government is for and wrecking, you know, and making the sale that government should be involved in many fewer parts of our lives at all levels, but including the federal government, the government, you know, the federal government should be spending much less and doing much less. And it should be limited to things like defense. And by that, I don't mean, you know, wars of choice all over the world and dropping, you know, endless amounts of bombs in places people don't even know about or having troops, you know, in every country in the world. 
it's, you know, we should be defending ourselves. We should be, uh, you know, the federal government should be helping people who cannot help themselves, mm. um, but it should be spending much less than it does so that what it does focus on, it can be a little bit more competent. And, and all government, all federal programs that give money to people, first off, it should only go to people who actually need it. And it should be in the form of unrestricted cash grants mm. because individuals know best how, you know, how to improve their lives. And like, I've known tons of people personally who are like, you know, they, uh, they have a car, they have a kind of a shitty job, but they're working because they'll get skills and move on to the next one. They have a car that breaks down. They could get welfare, you know, for housing support, for Medicaid, you know, to get healthcare, uh, you know, for food stamps, but you know, they, what they can't get is like the $200 they need to fix their car so they can keep going to work. Right. They lose their job. They go on welfare. They get disability to explain why they're not working, et cetera. You know, if we had a government, you know, that just gave, that helped people, you know, hit their basic needs when they needed it. Well, like I you, you mentioned, be better. you mentioned Sweden, uh, their, their, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, program, I guess we want to call it that. Mm-hmm is vastly different and all of northern europe is by the way uh yeah uh vastly different not the not necessarily eastern when, when, the farther east in europe right. you go the, the worse things get obviously right. but uh in, in northern europe the swedish government feels like it is their duty to get you back on the, the right path right uh so there's no 50 48 or 50 weeks of unemployment insurance and then mm-hmm. you just have to go do three job interviews a week and you get your money, no questions asked. No, they they do like a full assessment. All right, you got laid off for this reason. Maybe that industry is dying, so we need to retrain you in a new industry. And the, and the government retrains you in that industry and then helps you get a job there. And there's no limit on it. It could take three weeks. It could take a year, yeah. right? Um, and I, I think conservatives would probably bitch about that, that it's open-ended. But... When have penalties affected crime or or people taking advantage of systems? It doesn't work. Like all the all the research we've done on from from low level drug crime all the way up to murder, like the death penalty has literally no effect on whether or not people murder. It had there's there's zero correlation between those two things. So it seems like. Uh, I've mentioned this on the show before. There's a, a Christian writer back in the day, James Dobson, who wrote in, in a book about parenting that the more frequently you catch your kids doing the right thing, the less you'll catch them doing the wrong thing. And I think positive motivation is a big thing for people. Um, one of the users here in, in YouTube says, how does the Libertarian Party change from the party of I told you so to the party of solutions, right? That's, yeah, that's-, that's got to be the next big step, right? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, so Reason Magazine is published by a nonprofit, uh, Reason Foundation. They have a policy shop where they actually propose, you know, kind of limited government solutions to things that are kind of like the architecture of what's going on. So they, you know, they've come up with ways and they've implemented these in a bunch of cities and states, uh, for instance, for fixing public pension plans, Mm. which, you know, increasingly, and these are the types of things that are important, you know, this is the kind of scaffolding or the framework of everyday life that is kind of invisible unless you're looking for it. But, 
in a lot of states and a lot of cities, Chicago comes to mind, the pension liabilities are so incredible. They are sucking more and more energy out of the economy and out of taxpayers' wallets. Social Security and Medicare, which are universal programs that go to people uh, regardless of, of need, are taking up more and more of the federal budget. Like, how do you fix those? And, you know, so Reason Foundation has come up with things like that. They've come up with great uh, programs for um, increasing school choice, uh, giving, you know, if you give the money directly to the parents uh, or the student, you know, and, and the parents as a proxy and let them spend the federal dollars, the state dollars and the local dollars on whatever school they want, kind of like Pell Grants in college, you would change the way public education functions. It would get leaner, but more effective. And mm. most importantly, it would actually reflect the values and mores of the people who are going to yeah. I love, know, rather. I love Corey. Than, I love Corey DeAngelis. Yeah. Yeah. Who was at reason for a long time. He's yeah. now at a, at a different organization, yeah. but yeah, this idea of backpack funding, but like mm. when you start to think about that of like, how do you devolve decision-making to the individual, you know, as a matter of right. And then how do you help people who don't have the resources to actually opt in mm. uh, something like school choice, you know, middle-class people, certainly upper middle-class people and rich people have tons of school choice, but it's kind of people at the lower end where mm. education could really make a difference in their kids' lives. They have the least number of options that, you know, we can, we can fix that and address that. Um, I we, think we can also- fix it. That That's one of those things that doesn't require a, a huge, uh, uh, like a huge shift even just passing federal school choice where the money follows the kid would solve that problem within a, a couple mm-hmm. of years. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, Corey talks about how, you know, certainly at the federal level, and this is a place where Donald Trump, I'm not a Trump fan, but he was very good on school choice. Mm-hmm. As it happens, you know, the federal government isn't really the, the place where pol- school policy gets made. That's really made at the state and local mm-hmm. level. But Corey talks a lot about how like going to state capitals and, you know, lobbying for backpack funding laws where the dollars follow the student rather than go to the building that you then force the student to attend against their will. You can do that, you know, pretty effectively. Mm. There's a lot of things like that. You know, when it comes to things like drug legalization, you know, part of it is the idea if you give people more choices, you, you know, you, at the end of the day, uh, drug legalization is about giving people the choice, their choice of intoxicant or not to imbibe at all, um, which I think is a moral good. And I think it's philosophically, it makes a lot of sense. Really, nobody, I don't think anybody should be in jail because they prefer cocaine to, you know, to gin or or something. But more to the point, when you give more people more choices, it has all of these knock-on effects where suddenly police are not spending a lot of their time doing stupid drug war shit. And instead they can focus on actual property crime and violent crime. Uh, it doesn't so you know clog up the courts and the prisons with a lot of relatively nonviolent offenders who are you know who might even be kind of businessmen you know like drug dealers uh, you know some of them are mo- you know they're mostly entrepreneurs if you're in a black market violence ends up showing up because that's how you enforce contracts and transactions but it doesn't have to be that way but again the the push the way libertarians I think can change the conversation at every level of government is by saying, you know, how do we help individuals actualize their lives? Mm. Um, And then more broadly, you know, I write a lot about this, about federal budgets and debt and national debt and getting out the message that, you know, large national debt, 
you know, uh, and deficits and increasing with no possibility of slowing that down, it it's clearly has a depressive um, effect on the economy. It, it slows down economic growth. And that's a bad thing because economic growth is the best way to improve everybody's standard of living. Um, and, you know, making that argument and, and pitching it, you know, to, to younger people, you know, America, you know, America does pretty well by people who are over 65. We have been for decades now been screwing people under 40 by making them pay relatively high taxes mm -hmm. on payroll taxes and other things to pay for the benefits of relatively rich people. And, you know, we got to stoke that outrage and change our entitlements. Uh, you know, I'm 58, uh, almost 59. I'm doing well. Like nobody should be paying for my health care, my education, my retirement um, if I can do that. And I would gladly give all of that up. And, you know, if it would reduce the regulatory and tax burden on younger people who I was young, I, I didn't have any money when I was young. And I could have used, you know, relief from entitlement programs that I'm never really going to fully uh, participate in yeah. anyway. Ghostbed.com forward slash sugar bros. It's the best bed in the world. Slept on one last night. I've slept on one most nights for the past uh, six years. And every time I don't, I have flop sweat and back problems. So fuck that. And fuck you if you don't like it. Uh, ghostbed.com forward slash drinker You're going to get the best beds ever made. They're all cooling mattresses. Got a 20 to 25 year warranty. You can try it out for 101 nights. So they give you all the customer service stuff you could ever want. In addition to that, they give you some financial help. If you buy any of their mattresses along with an adjustable base and anything else you include on that order, you're going to get 40% off. For everything else, go to ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Use the code drinking bros and you're going to get 30% off. Blankets, weighted blanket, sheets, pillows, the mattress itself. If you just need an adjustable base, uh, if you need a mattress protector, any of that stuff you need, you're going to get it from the best company in the world, one that we've used for years now for a reason because they're the best. Um, next up, uh, hard AF seltzer. We're going through the deliberation process. Keep an eye on our social media for it uh, to decide which new flavors we're going to put out and which are your favorites. So I want you to keep a close eye on the Drinking Bros and Hard AF Seltzer Instagram pages because we're going to be run, running some polls on there. We have a few new flavors um, that you saw us try live on the air. Uh, Pina Colada is one. I don't remember the other one. Um, but there's, there's also some other ones in the rotation, and we're going to put out some new ones here pretty soon. So uh, in the meantime, if you like all of the originals or if you haven't had a chance to try them yet please go try them go to hardafseltzer.com try them let us know what your favorites are so we can make some decisions moving forward um and uh obviously take pictures send in pictures we enjoy it when you guys have fun um that's why we made the product in the first place so hit us up let us know what you think uh buy the product and uh enjoy how, how much of that do you think is uh, mission creep, just standard bureaucratic bloat that happens over time and, yeah. and the, uh, you know, the axis of 
uh, bureaucracy and and trying to maintain power over other people. Yeah, I mean it's it's a mix, I think, of you know mission creep and, and kind of natural bureaucratic tendencies. Or, or mm. I, Jefferson has a quote about how you know it's uh, you know the natural tendency for government to grow and liberty to yield or something yeah. along those lines. I think part of it is ideological as well, um, because again. Um, you know, both right wingers and left wingers in America, you know, they they have different language. But, you know, the, you know, you when's the last time you heard a Republican say, you know what we got to do? We got to get rid of entitlements for old people. We should have a safety net to help people. But like old people, if you're a millionaire, you know, pay for your own retirement. Yeah, they don't do that. And then left wingers or, you know, liberals and Democrats have a reason why everybody else should be getting more and and it's never like okay let's take it you know they'll say okay well you know we'll uh take it from a couple of billionaires but that's just not realistic they're always adding to the categories of people who should be getting more from the government first they came and for the socialists right i mean it's we're, right. we're living yeah. this shit <laughs> yeah and it's just like you know it's it's you know you, you you can't we we know all of these entitlement programs are at a point where there are so many takers and so few givers in terms of funding. Mathematically, they are impossible and they are a drag on everybody's life. Um, you know, give poor old people, help them survive, you know, in old age, but don't help, you know, and, and this it drives me nuts when people talk about a universal basic income. I think there's a difference between that, which is a bad idea. There's no reason why, you know, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg should be getting, uh, you know, $1,500 a month forever. Right. Um, but you can have a minimum, you know, basic income or something, maybe uh, that would be a much leaner program directed at people who need it. And that way, the government doesn't need as much money and people, uh, you know, are working more for themselves and have more flexibility and in, in, you know, in how they're living their lives. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, so if you're in a, if you're in a leadership position, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but there's something called span of control. And it means that you can only manage three to five people or entities or whatever it is at one time. Mm. So what do you do? You train those three to five people to train three to five more each and so on and so forth. It's not, it's, it's not multi-level marketing. So don't get me confused here. No, no, no. Uh, but I, I understand what you mean. This but, is, yeah. yeah. But that's the, that's how you do it. And in, in my opinion, it's why there's no fixed system of government that will ever scale, right? Without authoritarianism, like you, yeah. it's required at some point. And I think we've hit that point. Maybe, maybe it is some confluence of the uh, the population size mm -hmm. and attitude. But 350 million or so people with disparate opinions on things, living mm -hmm. across a, a large continent or a, a large country, rather, clearly uh, not working, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the main function of government, I think, and this, you know, is a is an ideological or philosophical point, but it, it is not to make everybody's life perfect. It is to kind of create a system where you were talking about, like, you know, 350 million people or however many people are who have different wants and desires mm -hmm. and objectives in their life. How do you create a system that allows them to kind of get along peacefully? And then, you know, on top of that, I, you know, I, I think there is a moral imperative to help people who for various reasons can't help sure. themselves. But without self-determinism, you know, it, it all breaks down, right? I mean, yeah, that, that kind but, of defeats the purpose. But, you know, the, the point of government, and I think we've gotten away from this, is to create a framework so that we can get on with our lives and where politics, I, you know, and this is where I'm not an anarchist, I think there are parts of our lives that are going to be, um, you know, where politics, where a consensus has to 
come into play. And, you know, 51% of the population gets to, you know, set the terms, mm. but that, that part of our lives should be as small as possible because it is by definition, it's zero sum. It, there are winners and losers. And that 51% typically acts very poorly towards the people that it, you know, it, it can rule over. Mm. You want that part of your life to be as small as possible because everything else, you know, in our business lives in our cultural lives in our personal lives, you know, that's where, that's where the energy is and should be. And we need to free up as much of our time and our resources to pursue, you know, the kind of company we want to work at or the kind of job we want to have, the kind of, you know, books and music and art we want to make or consume, uh, the churches that we want to belong to, you know, the people that we want to start families and communities with, you know, free that up. That, that's what I meant before when I said that uh, not taking control of your communities Mm-hmm. And and e- even the political process is invoking a self-imposed caste system on yourself and your family. I mean, we, yeah. we, we've, for the most part, outside of luck, we've uh, eliminated a, a great portion of the upward mobility that we spent a lot of time creating through the labor movement, the late 19th century, yeah. uh, through the GI Bill and the VA home loan after World War II. We created quite a bit of upward mobility during those two periods of time. And we pretty much eliminated all of it now. You are where you are. You might get lucky and be able to dig yourself out of there, but only if you're lower middle or middle class. If you're lower class, you either get lucky or you're fucked for your whole life. It's harder, you know, the further you go down the the ladder, it's harder to move up, but there's still robust uh, intergenerational uh, mobility um, and it could be higher. That's really the point. Part of it is because I, I write a lot about this actually. And, you know, like, if you look at people who were born in 1940 or 1960, it was easier for them to move up the income ladder, the class ladder, partly because the country was much poorer. Um, but it's true, you know, like when you think about things like education and when you think about housing, housing, you know, could be a lot cheaper if we got rid of, you know, many of the regulatory barriers that just make things more expensive for no good reason, mm-hmm. other, you know, other than to help the status quo, like, you know, ho- existing homeowners have a kind of vested interest in there not being any more homes. You know, mm. like if you're part, if you're in the supply, you know, why would you increase the supply necessarily? Mm. And we have to get back to, you know, a recognition of what's going on and how to, how to open things up, how to, how to exert less control over people throughout the system and, and instead give them more control. Right. Uh, so speaking of uh, exerting less control over the system, I, I guess maybe this is an example that uh, Chase Abudin, Chesa, mm-hmm. however you say a stupid fucking name, uh, he's been thoroughly rebuked now by yep. even the most liberal city in the world. Um, yep. And uh, when you look at the, the cross tabs, when you look at the, uh, the, the exit polling, the largely Chinese immigrant communities who have been the victims mm-hmm. of quite a bit of violence voted against him more than any other community, I believe. Um, as a matter of yeah. fact, every minority-dominant community inside of uh, San Francisco, except for the Mission District, I believe, mm-hmm. voted pretty heavily against him, like 60 to 30-ish yeah. range. Um, from the libertarian perspective, I know that we don't want over-policing. We don't want, uh, uh, certainly not the drug war, which you, you mentioned before. Yeah. Uh, the mass incarceration thing, and then the secondary effect of that, which is a bunch of fatherless homes that have led to just sprees and violence uh, recently. What's the libertarian position on how 
this particular problem should be handled. Like from a security standpoint, broken mm-hmm. window theory is the lo- lowest possible level that government can affect that, right? right. Ob- obviously, just keeping things nice, property crimes, things like that, lower level yeah. crimes, prosecuting that to keep it from escalating. But the war on drugs, as you said, I actually wrote my master's thesis on the the closed border policy of the United States and how it's created a professional violent smuggling class. And it, right. and, and it's it's worse now than it's ever been. So I guess I maybe I should have written a longer paper, but um <laughs> What's the what's the libertarian position on enforcement in that way? So I think that yeah, you know the the Bowdoin or Bodin um, uh, recall is fascinating, and I think you know the the one thing I know for sure is what people in San Francisco on mass, and again, you know, people who are generally very liberal, um, you know, were responding to a city that is in obvious decline, um, and that you know it's not simply uh, you know law. But it, you know, that extends to a lot of it. There are like mass homeless people. There's a sense that social order at its most basic level has broken down. Some of that is, you know, might be the fault of his policies. A lot of it is other kinds of governmental policies that have made San Francisco increasingly expensive to live in. Uh, but you, the services that you get are worse and worse. And I also think, you know, in San Francisco, and we've covered a bunch of this stuff at Reason, you know, you get people who are constantly talking about how it's too expensive to live there, but then they won't allow any new housing. Like they won't increase the supply of housing. And it's like, you are insane. Like if you are holding these two things, you know, independently in your head, like this, it's not going to work, you know, and and that's true broadly of California. I lived, uh, I've lived in California at various points, most recently for seven months towards the end of 2020 and the beginning of 20 uh, through the middle of 2021. And it's a state that has, you know, pursued a high tax, high regulation um, strategy, and it's not delivering on any of the benefits of that anymore. It's, you know, if you, you, it's hard to get into a UC school, it's hard to get into a Cal State school, the police, you know, are not doing well, the housing is massively expensive, Uh, the state services are terrible, you know, the schools are mediocre at best. Um, So I think uh, Bodine is, you know, is paying the price for that. Um, there are certain elements of his agenda, like, you know, uh, getting rid of cash bail, uh, which was generally held not to actually reduce crime, but it does punish poor people unfairly, um, you know, minimizing certain types of crimes that doesn't seem to have worked. You know, I mean, it's like it, it kind of created a, a, a system where some people, you know, professional criminals were taking advantage of relaxed enforcement of very basic laws about shoplifting and things mm-hmm. like that. So I, you know, regardless of the specifics of it, I see it as a, you know, as a wake up call. Um, if that is happening in, you know, the most, you know, liberal city and the most liberal state in the country, um, it is a sign that reality is starting to dawn on people. And I think from a libertarian perspective, what you want is not a government, you know, a city government that promises all things to all people and charges you, you know, through the roof for it. It's rather you want to you want a, a city government that does a few basic things. It keeps the roads clear. Mm. Uh, it you know it has decent infrastructure. Um, it it uh, protects people's rights through police. You know not over policing but actual policing. Um, and you know this may be a turnaround point um, because California, San Francisco has lost a lot of people because of COVID and because it's in many ways it's unlivable. Uh, California has lost people year over year. They lost a congressional seat for the first time. Uh, hopefully we will see, you know, if they're waking up to it, the rest of us 
can either wake up to it or stop it before it overtakes other parts of the country. Sure. Uh, I mean, it looks like George Gascon in L.A. is going to get recalled yeah. as well. Um, Who had been a mentor to Bowdoin and and had been a D.A. in San Francisco mm. before. Um, so, you know, that's good. I lived in L.A. when I was in California um, in uh, in Venice and which, you know, had a homeless problem that was out of control and a kind of uh, quality of life issue that was not being attended to by the city government. Um, and it is hard. Like, I, you know, you never want to be in a position where you are just letting the police loose to round up anybody that seems to be homeless or a bit odd. But there is a, you know, there is a growing problem of people who are homeless, who are uh, either mentally ill or drug addicted, um, that are destroying the quality of life for everybody. There needs to be a better system in place to give those people, you know, certainly voluntary um, access to treatment programs or to better living situations. Because, you know, in Venice, uh, near the beach, there are, you know, people in multi-million dollar homes who have homeless people sleeping in front of them, defecating all over the place. Like, this is not a system that's going to hold up very well. Part of it is making housing more affordable. Part of it is giving more services to people um, you know, who need them. Part of it is enforcing basic everyday you know, um, a custom of like, you know, it is, you know, it's not acceptable to shit on the streets. Uh, you know, like you can do that in your backyard, but you can't do that in, you know, in somebody else's front yard. Right. Um, and, you know, it's not easy to fix any things. And you do always, I think from a libertarian perspective, you always need to be careful about people's rights because a lot of times powerful people invoke hysteria or panic in order just to get rid of things they don't like. Um, so, you know, you need to be careful about that. But I think, you know, the, the results in, in, in San Francisco and also the recall, uh, possibly even more important of the board of education mm. in San Francisco, where, you know, people during COVID where they were not instructing kids and where they were, you know, arbitrarily opening and closing things. The San Francisco school board was spending a ton of time talking about renaming schools <laughs> to get, you know, and, and again, you saw the Asian American community, particularly the Chinese community yeah. uh, there, but other people being like, what the fuck? Like, let's get our priorities in a row, you know, in, in order here. So I I'm, you know, I'm happy to see this. Uh, you know, the one thing you never know what comes next. Um, but you know, this seems to be like the beginning of something positive that, um, you know, we should all be looking at and discussing and figuring out how do we apply kind of the same dynamics and analysis to our more local. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I've got a lot of friends who were uh, people who followed politics who are now getting pretty deeply involved in it. And uh, I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, obviously, you you, you want to have as much say in in how things are going around you as possible. Otherwise right. the system doesn't work. Right. I mean, yeah. you, you can imagine yourself in the office uh, and there's one or two busy bodies and they're the ones that it, sign up mm -hmm. for every meeting and every committee. And you're like, oh, I don't feel like doing that. But if I don't go, that dummy is going to go and make some stupid ass policy that we all have to follow. Well, that's what we've done in America yep. for the last like 40 years, basically. Sure. Um, like the idea that Nixon talked about the silent majority what was that fucking 60 years ago when he first mentioned that or 50 years ago when he first yeah, mentioned yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, in the late 60s, early 70s. So we're, yeah. still, we're still dealing with the compulsion from people who lean center right 
uh, to not get involved in politics. Right. Right. Like that's, it just doesn't work that way. And at least not, yeah. maybe it never worked. I don't think the founders certainly didn't ex- expect us all to just sit at home and let things happen to us. Right. I um, mean, and, and again, I think you know, part of the thing is, you know, when you think of powerful institutions like local school districts, um, you know, planning boards and things like that, they very quickly get captured by special interests. Um, and, you know, and then people kind of live with the consequences and it's, you know, it's, it's a real responsibility to be part of your community and shaping it. And as a libertarian, I think the, the best ways that you can do that is by living your life the way you want to, by starting the businesses and the, the voluntary associations. Um, but you also need to be working to create a, you know, an architecture that empowers individuals mm. and, and decentralizes power and decision making, because that's, to me, is the biggest problem. And so, you know, thinking about something like school choice, if you if you create a system of school choice, um, you know, and you have to do that by engaging with education policy, either at the state or the local level, you make it easier for everybody to kind of find their own way. And, you know, that that's a, a better way of doing politics than trying to take over something and then forcing your singular vision of the world on everybody around you. Yeah, sure. Um, certainly. It, it's the the. Uh, return returning power back to people, which was the point in the first place. I really enjoy when Corey uh, people will people will say politicians and and bots on Twitter will say if school choice passes, then you're effectively defunding public education. Mm-hmm. And he will just rhetorically ask, "Well, why? Why would that happen?" And I, right. obviously, the point is, it would only defund public education if public education fucking sucks. Right. Or, well, it defunds, you know, public edu- public school buildings, but yeah. not the education. The education right. is, you know, is something that's determined by the student, right, or the parents. So it's it's a different funding mechanism for sure. And it sucks money out of, you know, dead buildings uh, that, you know, in places like Los Angeles, you know, has spent billions of dollars on school buildings, even as their enrollments decline. Mm. You know, why would you do that? That I mean, these are, you know, these are pyramids for dead pharaohs, um, you know, and the, the point is, like, you should be funding the kids who can find education all over the place. Um, you know, just as you have storefront churches, you could have storefront schools that people get a lot of value out of and actually want to go to. Uh, there was a great libertarian uh, newspaper guy who ran what became the Orange County Register. He was uh, named R.C. Hoyles. And uh, he the, when he was running the uh, Orange County Register, the Santa Ana Register at the time, it was the only newspaper on the West Coast that editorialized against the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Uh, but he was fond of saying, you know, the only difference between whorehouses and public schools is that people have to be forced to go to public schools, um, you know, or the main difference. And it's like, that, you know, right there, that tells you that, you know, something is, is really, really wrong. And we sure. can, we can address these things. But again, I think the overriding, you know, principle or idea is like, how do you return more meaningful decision-making to individuals, Sure, yeah. um, you know, and give them more space to experiment, you know, a model, as long as we're psychically in California, you know, a model is burning man where, mm. you know, people go and they do weird, crazy stuff. And, uh, you know, and they clean up after themselves. That's like, you know, that's, you know, that might not scale up, uh, but it's kind of an interesting way to think about how we might govern ourselves, especially when we're reaching a point where government is broke and we're never going to be able to pay for all of its promises. 
So let's you know reset the slate of what it does and how we interact with it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> that that's the Boy Scouts. Leave it better mm-hmm. than way, how you found it. And I uh, and yeah. and just from you know one one more warning. I warn this audience a lot to get involved. Box the government out in any chance you get. If there's a problem in the community, solve it. I mean, think about the people that run for political office. They're basically the hall monitors who volunteered for it in grade school. Uh, is that the the you you want a a bunch of those people telling you what to do all the time? Right. It doesn't make sense. Let me ask you one last question before we get sure. out of here. And this is a big one for <clears throat> libertarian folk, and one that I think is uh, is a bit nuanced. Under what circumstances should America get involved in foreign conflicts? Yeah, uh, that's a, a really good question. And you know, generally, my you know my immediate answer is we should be in, you know militarily involved. You know, boots on the ground when America or its very specific interests or people are being attacked. So, you know, in general, I'm not an isolationist, but I am a non-interventionist. And, um, you know, uh, to put a little bit of meat on those bones, you know, I think uh, we had a right, uh, if you know, a responsibility even to go after bin Laden in Afghanistan when we knew he was there and the government there refused to hand him over or help us. You know, we were legitimate to go into the country. We were not legitimate to stay there for 20 years and kind of waste our resources and our people and do massive destruction to that country Mm. for no clear aim. Right. I mean, realistically, that was such a folly. Iraq isn't even worth talking about. It was a complete non sequitur in going after bin Laden and the other people responsible for 9-11. Um, you know, and so I think we should be militarily involved in many, many fewer conflicts than we have been or will be. Um, and, you know, the main thing that that what America should be doing is always be open to people who are leaving war zones. Uh, you know, not only did we go into Afghanistan and then fuck it up for 20 years, uh, we are now being really cheap and chintzy and like letting people who helped us there come into the United States. I mean, this is so morally repugnant i i'm I'm beside myself on that type of thing i mean it's the same thing we did to them in the 80s right we helped them defeat the russians and we created uh, a monster there and then we left and let the monster this is i mean the the truth of you know most interventions is that you know whatever seems good at the time ends up creating the next thing that we're fighting Mm -hmm. and certainly you see that we funded the mujahideen because they were fighting back against the soviets uh, you know, and the Soviet Union had no right to invade Afghanistan. That was a bad thing. But not every fight is our fight I, with something like Ukraine. Um, you know, I it, it worries me that we are inching our way into, you know, full fledged engagement there. And if we're being realistic, you know, the, the U- U.S. foreign policy should be about defending American interests and honoring our obligations. We don't technically have any strict obligations with Ukraine. I think this is something that the country surrounding it, uh, you know, Germany, uh, France, Poland, Italy, other large, you know, powerful countries in Europe have stepped up and we should continue to support them to do that. But like we shouldn't be involved there. Um, that's not our fight. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and, you know, and, you know, if the past 20 years of, you know, of foreign policy has taught people anything, um, it's that war does not you know, war is not a particularly easy or quick way to solve anything. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the big libertarian wins over the past two decades. People are much more averse to war than they were. Um, You know, we shouldn't, 
have lost as many lives and killed as many people in foreign countries as we did to have to learn that lesson. But it's good. And we should also, though, you know, not mistake not being, you know, not being ready to, you know, to drop bombs and troops on every country to confuse that with isolationism. We should be involved very much in diplomacy. Uh, we should be very much involved in trade, including cultural exchange. Mm. Like America, the more open America is, the more its kind of products and spirit will be accepted around the world. And I think the more peaceful the world will be. And we'll also we'll benefit from that. You know, the whole point of, you know, kind of capitalism and market exchanges is that when they're done willingly, each every participant leaves better off than they were before the deal. They wouldn't make it. We should be selling more things to the world, buying more things from the world. We should be, you know, sharing our culture and our values in with the world, not at the point of a bayonet, you know, but at the, uh, you know, at, you know, via Netflix and Amazon, via, you know, business, via commerce, via travel and migration. Uh, these are the ways to engage the world and make it better and yeah. safer and more peaceful. Well, there's a, there's a modern blueprint for that. We did it in China. People, people, you know, it's easy to cast China as an evil dictatorship. And, and frankly, they are, I mean, uh, mm -hmm. those, their, their government's completely fucked, but yep. over the last 30 years, China has gone from a place uh, of uh, where their major cities were failing because of uh, labor shortages. Like uh, during the Chinese new year, Everybody leaves, right, for about a month, two to three weeks. Uh, and when they all come back, about 40% of the workforce doesn't return from the hinterland, right? Hmm. Uh, that got worse. It, it wasn't quite so bad before, but it got worse as they saw neighboring countries who were also heavily involved in manufacturing, uh, paying people living wages and things like that. Yeah. The, <clears throat> China has improved dramatically over the past 20 years and the treatment of workers and the pay of workers and all that stuff. Now they're still fucked, but yep. the reason all that happened is because of pressure put on them by not just the American government, but by the purchasing power of the American right. citizenry. We yeah, bringing them, bringing them into the global economy, uh, mm. you know, and it's, you know, there are issues to be sure. Some of what you mentioned and also the way that they are, uh, you know, uh, kind of one-sided in a lot of their trade. But by bringing them into the global economy, we raise the living standards of millions of people, mm. hundreds of millions of people, and make it less likely that they're going to invade or, you know, yeah. become bellicose in their region, even if they're rattling their sabers. Yeah, we did more um, just by telling yeah. them, you have to do this for us to buy yeah. your products than we ever could have done with any war. Yeah. And, you know, and it remains, you know, there are certain types of pressure that we can apply. That pressure is more meaningful when we're engaged with them. You know, we have more influence with uh, with China than we do with North Korea, mm. you know, partly because, you know, we're actually actively engaged in trade and commerce and back and forth with China. I also think, you know, I, I appreciate you being nuanced on that because right now, China, you know, Russia is once again our number one enemy, but people on both the right and the left are demonizing China completely and even the Chinese people. And that kind of shows you how hard it is to have a nuanced discussion about how do you help people? How do you make the world better? Not in a utopian way where you, you know, it's like a, a magic eraser board <laughs> where you just swipe everything clean and rebuild on it. But in the world we're in today, and I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, that's you know, you engage people through commerce, through culture, uh, through example, by allowing people to come here. Uh, you know, one of the best things that we do 
to change the future of China is to have a lot of Chinese students and a lot of Chinese migrants come here. And they're like, you know, wow, like when they go back to China, if they go back, yeah. they're going to be like, you know what, um, you know, like I want to have the equivalent, you know, of of a middle class life with all of its cultural freedoms that they have in America. And they're, they'll work for it. I mean, and there's no question the Chinese government is repressive, is awful, is immoral. Um, but the question that isn't the question. The question is, how do you make it less like right. that? And one of the ways is by, you know, engaging with them. Correct. Yeah. Liberty is a, is a bell that simply cannot be unrung. All right. Like very good. Very um, good. Well, thanks for coming today. We appreciate it. It's a yeah. very interesting conversation, elucidated a lot of points from uh, the libertarian side, uh, most of which I agree with. Um, and not that that should matter, but um, uh, we appreciate it. Come and tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your material work, et cetera. So, you know, everything I do is at reason.com. It shows up there one way or the other. So go to reason.com and you can Google Nick Gillespie. I'm also very active, too active on Twitter <laughs> at Nick Gillespie, all lowercase. All right. Thanks a lot for coming. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. Uh, until then, we'll see you in hell. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details